episode 255 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by Learn the Finer Points. Use the link below to save 10% off their ground school app. The TSO certified Bose ProFlight Series 2 aviation headset pairs Bose noise cancellation with optimum comfort. It's engineered to be the lightest, most compact aviation headset for an uncompromised flying experience. Start your 60-day test flight and finance with Bose Pay at Bose.com ProFlight. With high-resolution coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and STORMTRACKS, Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out aopa.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I know, I know. An episode before I said, hey, brand new content coming next week. Well, that content canceled on me on the one day I had a babysitter. But good news is I was able to record another episode that's going to be coming out next week. Why not this week? Well, that's because it just takes a little bit of time to edit that one because it was a little bit longer than this one is planned to be. But nonetheless, we will have new, fresh content and I can't wait for it. Speaking of new, uh, I just want to go ahead and give out a huge shout out to First Forum. You've heard me talk about it. Uh, I'm going to put a link down below. It takes you to the website. Check them out. Honestly, it's been kind of a game changer in how I'm deciding how I want to change my lifestyle, especially a healthy lifestyle. I've recently downloaded the app. Uh, I've signed up for the app. Uh, Full disclosure, they are sponsoring me and they are helping me through this process of kind of new fitness. So trying to get back to the level where I was when I was playing college football, but it's been great. You know, I got my own personal and uh, my own trainer essentially to talk to through the app and motivate me and really get to know me and what works best for me, especially this crazy lifestyle of being a pilot. It's hard to stay healthy. So uh, get some protein bars and check out their app. It's amazing. But Aviation, today's episode is a re-release with Mindy and Kevin, also known as Schmindy, aka the person that stole my airplane and the reason why I do not have an amazing 182 sitting in my hangar. So thanks, Mindy. But nonetheless, I am here to promote their episode. Uh, go figure. But uh, they're two great people. I hate saying that because they're probably going to DM me be like, oh, you love us, but uh, they are pretty awesome and they're hilarious too. So this is a great episode and hope you enjoy it. Without any further ado, here's Mindy and Kevin. Hello and welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. If you can't tell, this is not Justin. My name is Mindy Lindheim and I am a guest host for Justin this week. Why he takes a little break and just huge congrats to Justin for creating this community that is so open to sharing their stories about how they got in their aviation careers. That way other people can be inspired and motivated and go take on their wildest aviation dreams. So I love it. I love what you're doing, Justin. And thank you for having me as a guest host this week. So Justin reached out to me and asked, Hey Mindy, would you be open to doing a guest host for me um, on my podcast? And obviously I said, yes, I love the podcast. Huge fan. Um, I was lucky enough to be on the podcast. You can go search for it. I don't know what episode it is. It's one of the earlier ones, but you can go type it in and find it if you want to learn a little bit more about me. But 
Today is not about me. Um, Justin told me I could interview anyone I want for this podcast. And I was so excited because I knew exactly who I was going to interview. And this is going to be easy because we're sometimes in the same place. I guess it's not as easy as it sounds. We both travel a lot, but I am interviewing my husband, Kevin Lindheim. So here he is. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you, Mindy, for having me. And thank you, Justin, for letting us uh, do this on your podcast. Yes. So Kevin, um, the first thing that we all want to hear is just a very brief background. What, like, what is your aviation background? So I am a f- newly minted private pilot in 2020. Woo! And what I do for my day job is- Wait, an air- what? Didn't you get your license in 2021? What? In January? 2021? <laughs> uh, we're trying to forget about 2020, right? Yeah, you just brought it up. Oh, no. I got it in January 2021, didn't I? Sorry, this is your story. I'm going to let you tell it, but I can't, you have to tell it accurately. <laughs> See what we're dealing with here? Okay. Well, I got my private pilot license in January of 2021, as we now know. But my day job, I'm an air traffic controller at Atlanta Center. So tell me how you got into air traffic control. That's a question I get about you all the time is how the heck did he become a controller and why? I get that question a lot too, because it's a, it's a weird job and people who aren't in this industry don't really understand what we do. So for me, I've been a baseball player my whole life. I'm rolling my eyes. She Listen, something you need to know about Mindy is she loves baseball. We're players. beating a dead horse here. We know. So anyways, I played baseball my whole life. I went to Stetson University. It's a small school in Florida. And I, you know, through trials and tribulations, I, it didn't work out. And I had some buddies at Embry-Riddle who asked me to go play golf with them in a summer day. And I went to the field and met the coaches. And they offered me a scholarship and I knew nothing about aviation or nothing about the school. So my mother, who we love so dear, don't we, Mindy? Yes. This is my favorite part of the story too. <laughs> my mother calls the school and says, what, what uh, degree can my son do that you'll accept the most credits from Stetson? And they tell her air traffic control. So I get a phone call that afternoon and my mom says, you're going to go to Embry-Riddle and be an air traffic controller. And I love my mother so much. I said, okay. And that's how I got into aviation. <laughs> okay. So just to sum it up, you're a controller because of your mom. Yeah. She signed you up. And you love her for it. <laughs> Actually, I do. That's one of her finer decisions in life. So kudos to Mama Lynn time. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned going to Embry-Riddle. Um, how was your experience at Embry-Riddle? What is that school like, especially coming from a non-aviation school going to Embry-Riddle? What was that like for you? Well, I think uh, this is something Justin knows a lot about. When you're an athlete in college at a Division One level, you're treated as an athlete. You're not treated as someone who's going to school there. Riddle is not like that. They don't care about athletes. No, <laughs> they don't care. I actually had to learn where the library was for the first time So proud of you. And honestly, that really didn't happen until I met Mindy, but that's for another story. So Riddle was a lot different. You know, I had to actually go to school 
I had to study. I had to get grades, which was weird for me. Because being a baseball player, that's all I do. But at Riddle, they don't care that you play baseball. Right. So are you happy with your experience at Embry-Riddle? I was thrilled with it. I mean, Riddle to me has given me everything I have now, including you, my beautiful wife. Okay, okay. <laughs> Too sentimental for you? Yes. I love it though. I, I loved my experience at Riddle. I was only there for two years as well. I was also a transfer in. So it was quick. Um, but Riddle really does set you up for success. I couldn't speak more highly about them. Um, I know that you can get your license anywhere and I figured that out quickly. I didn't do all my flight ratings there, but what they are so good at is placing you into careers. And me and you both have our careers straight out of college and we've been in the same job for the past six-ish years because of Riddle. They placed us in our jobs right yep. away. And, and one thing are. I can actually speak to that's true is at my job at Atlanta Center, we, uh, we have 400 controllers there and there is an overwhelming amount of people who graduated from Riddle. You know, whether it's needed or not, it's the point of what you get after the fact, after you graduate. So did going to Embry-Riddle give you any advantage when you applied to the FAA to become a controller? So going to Riddle gives you no advantage to, for applying and getting hired. And it used to, right? It used to. They changed the requirements. For anyone who wants to know, the only thing required to be an air traffic controller for the FAA is three years of progressive work experience or a four-year college degree. So I could work at McDonald's for three years. As long as you're full-time. With no college background. Correct. Full-time McDonald's apply to be an air traffic controller and I'm eligible. You are eligible. That's nuts. And so I remember that when we were in college, that our senior year in college was the year that they changed that, that rule. So they used to give a preferred treatment to people who went to, is called a CTI school. Yes. Right? What does that stand for? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Okay. I've been out of college for a while. I mean. <laughs> so if you went to a CTI school, for example, Embry-Riddle, and applied to become a controller then you got preferential treatment to the hiring process. And then our senior year, they took that away. And I remember like it flipped Riddle's head over. It was crazy. And all the kids were freaking out because a lot of people were paying good money to be there to have that leg up and have that extra opportunity. Well, it used to be you either were in the military or you went to CTI school. But what I do know is recently on the new applications, there is a spot for it and it does give you an additional points you know, for those who do go to CTI schools, it's not as it used to be, but you are able to at least get, I wouldn't say preferential treatment, but you're, you're getting a leg up on it. Okay. So you mentioned the application. Tell me about the application process. So kind of go over that. So you either have your three years of full-time work experience or you have your college degree and you're like, yes, I'm ready to apply. What is step one? So since it's a government job, the application's on USA Jobs. Mm -hmm. So you have to have that all up and running. And I would suggest anyone who is even interested in it, you could do it now. Get your resume up there, get everything built. And then you submit that and let it go into wherever, you know, whatever office it goes into the government. Let's be honest. (laughs) And it takes forever. There is nothing quick about it. 
you know, I can go into my experience, but let's just uh, uh, real quick. It took me about three years from the time I pressed submit to the time I got my letter to go to Oak City. And you were, I mean, we, yes. we know. So you applied through USA Jobs and that's just like a basic application. Yeah. Pretty much, do you want to work here? You click yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are you a U.S. citizen? Do so you, uh, that first application, you know, kind of says, okay, you're eligible. What's the next step? What happened after that? Whenever it said, hey, you're eligible to be a controller, what happened next? So once they accept you, then you get, uh, they call it a bio questionnaire. What is that? It's just a, it's not really even an aptitude test. It, you know, it, I don't even know what it was what like. What kinds of questions were on there? Do you remember? It just was a men- more of a mental test of anything. They asked just a bunch of the same questions. And uh, that was like the first thing they changed. I'm not real sure how it works now. But when they first changed the process, I was one of few at Riddle that passed it. And that was just the first step. Once you pass the BioQ, then you have to take a ton of tests. So the BioQ is... Um- is that to make sure you're like, quote unquote, mentally fit to be able to be a controller? There's one after the BioQ. So that's not it. The, the BioQ is a like, very who are initial you? thing. Yeah, it's just the initial step. Okay. It's not, I mean, to me, it really wasn't even an aptitude test. Okay. You know, so it asks you questions. It's not math or anything, it's just about you. Yeah, this was different. And then you had to go take um, what they call an ATSA. And that is the aptitude test. That was a, they say it's a seven hour long test. That one, that gets into everything. I mean, there's really, there's nothing about aviation in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just, you take the test. And like I said, it's an aptitude test. And then you wait forever. So you got bio done, check, ATSAT done, check. Then what? Now you pretty much, once you know you pass the the ATSAT, now you know you have a job. So now the FAA is going to send you everything they need from you to be an air traffic controller. So you have to go get a medical done. Then you have to take... And I remember, just to cut you off real quick, the medical for you was way more like intrusive than a pilot medical. Yeah, I had to get an EKG, which... And you're well under 40, yeah, to my knowledge. Yeah, it's an EKG. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in my 20s. Hey, for you remind me For a very this, short yeah. amount of time left in your 20s. <laughs> yes. Whatever. Okay, so uh, yeah, I remember your medical took hours though. Yeah, weren't you with me? Yeah, I waited yeah. in the car. She you came said it'd be with quick. me for my first medical ever. No, I waited in the car. You said it was going to be fast, and it was like two or three hours. I, I forever the EKG. I broke the EKG machine. It just didn't work on me because my heart was so That's pure. Why it took so long. I remember <laughs> you did break it. <laughs> okay, so then you go through your medical check, and then you had to round up like a ton of stuff. I assume that's because it's a government job, yeah, like so, uh, jobs and houses and where you've lived. and Everything there is to know about you, it's in the security background. And it kind of reminded me of when a family member of mine applied to be a police officer. They yeah. did like this extensive roundup. It was very similar to that, actually. Yeah, it's, it's a lot and a lot of information, everything financially. I mean, I have no money. 
to my name. I have nothing. I'm like, well, I don't even know what they want from me. But, you know, and they're looking for all these references. And I put my best friends from high school on my references. <laughs> Who doesn't do that? As an adult now, I'm like, I hope they never had to call them, which one of my friends said they did call and they, they thought it was funny. I think they called the right friend of yours. Because yes, if they, they would have called the other two, you probably wouldn't have a job. Yeah, that was a dumb move. But after... Everyone does. Yeah. And then the, the final thing was the mental test. Which that one, I struggled with a little bit, as we know. But No, we don't know. Tell us. <laughs> as you know. So this test, um, it's a MMPI test. I think that's what it's called. And it just um, tries to see if you're mentally fit. That's what the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this one, I ended up failing, which is fun. You know, so I get a letter saying you failed. So I'm like, oh, I'm crazy now. I was so happy that for the first time, someone else said, yes, he is crazy. That's just not true. (laughs) Not as crazy as you. No, the funny thing. So tell them why they said you failed. So they said I answered every single question right, which I don't even know how it's possible. Right. I mean, so it flagged it because it appeared that you were trying too hard to pass. It's the not test. a multiple ch- test question. You know, it's just a, it's just asking you about yourself. And is it I, fill in the blank? No, I mean it is A B C D, but it's not like a test. You know, it's just asking like honestly questions on it for people who have taken it. It's like you know, wh- do you have dark thoughts? You know, do you drink a lot of alcohol? Right. You know, do you do drugs? And I'm like, no, 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 no. But they ask it in different ways. And the <laughs> what ended up happening is I I had to go see a psychiatrist. Yeah, you did. Which was amazing. And at this time, you got your first job with Textron and we moved to Chicago. So I get the email saying, here's your psychiatrist. And then I get it. The guy's based in Miami. I'm like, this is awesome. It's a good start. So I call him. And he's like, oh, I have an office in Chicago, but I'm going out of the country for four months. I'm like, cool. What's another four months to wait? And anyways, I met this guy on a Sunday, downtown Chicago on Michigan Avenue on like the 70th floor of a high rise. And it was very uncomfortable. It's the first time I've ever been to a psychiatrist. And he had me talk for four hours straight, which I love. <laughs> Yeah, you I know. know. That's another reason why I picked you for this podcast. Like, who can talk for an hour straight? I that would be it. my husband. But here's the difference. He listened. <laughs> okay. Ouch. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, so then you get through all that and then they give you a class date out in Oklahoma City. You moved out there for a couple months and then you got placed. So when you got sent out to Oklahoma City, there was two different types of schools you could have got put into. There's two different types of controllers, right? Explain that. So you have center, which is what I am. There's only 20 centers in the U.S. And those, they just deal with a lot of airspace, a lot of states. Yeah. That's the way I think of it. So there's actually three, three controllers. So there's centers, then there's approach controls, which deal with, you know, uh, big Bravo airspaces and satellite airports around. And then there's towers. Those are the ones actually on the field. So you can get sent to any three of those classes? So you either get center or tower approach. Okay, tower and approach are looped together. Yes, they're always looped together, Oak City. And did you get to pick that you wanted to be a center controller? I did not. They assigned you. They assigned from the very get-go. You don't get to pick anything. They assign you center and that's it. And you don't even know where you're going. 
That's going to be a common theme for the rest of this story is that <laughs> you have no choice. It's a great job, but there's not a lot of choices. You when you post submit on USA Jobs, it, it actually tells you on there, um, you must be willing to move. And, that, and they really mean. Uh, yes. Because yes. for instance, if you get the tower approach, um, what they do, they don't send you to high level facilities. Where me, I'm fortunate. I got Atlanta Center, which is the busiest in the world. But if you get tower approach, you get sent to like Helen, Montana. Right. So center controllers, you know, there's different levels of centers and levels means uh, the amount of traffic that goes to that facility and then they rate it based on how busy it is. But all centers are pretty comparable. Like there's not a drastic spectrum. But uh, towers, on the other hand, there's some podunk towers in the middle of nowhere that see two airplanes a day. And then you have Hartsfield and JFK. So on the tower side, they put you at a like super low key tower and you have to work your way up versus center. You just kind of get thrown into the fire and you stick with it the whole time. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ability to train. So like it's at Atlanta Center, we have an entire department for training and the, and the trainers in the back aren't even government employees. They're contract workers. Whereas um, Atlanta Tower, even there, they're not going to have their own outside trainers. So they expect, you know, the actual uh, certified controllers are going to be training every step of the way. Right. So tell me about Oklahoma City. So every single controller that is employed by the FAA in the USA goes to this facility in Oklahoma City. Is that true? Every single one. Every single person. So what is that like? Oak City is the best, isn't it, man? <laughs> is it like boot camp? Like, like, what is this school like? It's about three-ish months, two months. Well, you remember when I said you don't have to have any qualifications to get this job. So they start from the get-go. And, and it's really challenging for a lot of people because they have no um, understanding of what aviation is. So the very first day, I'd say it's a, about a month long. It's basically a private pilot ground school. That was optional. It was optional as well. Okay, so you get there and you do this private pilot ground school, which I don't know why you would opt out of that. I think everyone should go to that. And then afterwards, then you start learning how to become a controller. But at this point, you're not assigned to a facility. So you're not learning your own airspace that you're going to be going to eventually, right? You're all learning. We're learning the academy. So they have their own okay. um, fake airspace. Okay. And, and also in the private power ground school, every single thing you do gets tested. And at any point in time, you could pretty much fail and that ends your, your career. So like all the, the trainers and teachers there, they always say you have a job. Like they'll, don't let them take it from you. You know, they're, you, yeah. they're not, they, you have a job until you don't. I just remember every single day of academy, you and your classmates was more and more stressful because the further you got, the higher the stakes. And like you said, if you failed, like you're fired. They would escort you off the premises with guards. That's terrifying. Like <laughs> think about people who aren't good at taking tests, like yeah. how much I couldn't tell you how many anxiety. tests we took. I mean, in four months, hundreds of tests. Four hundreds months. Of That's tests. how long it was. Okay. Yeah, it was about four. That's <clears throat> that's just crazy. So what kind of tests? So they're like 
doing, you're running simulators and stuff, right? Yeah, the simulators start uh, probably two months in. Everything uh, up until then is all paper tests. You know, you're, because you're just trying to learn things because it's just like flying. You know, there's the um, FARs and everything. So in ATC, we have what's called the .65 and that's our manual. And people don't, you know, you have to learn it. So Mm -hmm. constantly learning every single page of that book and it's a 700 page book. You got to read every single thing. You're tested on every single word on it. What was the graduation rate when you were there? When I was there, it was, I mean, I would say less than 50% was fair. In the four months I was there, I, I had seen probably two or three classes. Because let me say, each class had 18 kids in it. That's how many... Um, That's standard. It's 18 kids. So the most I've ever seen was like 16 or 17 pass. What? The most common... I've never heard of that many passing. Yeah, but that was only, like I said, and, they, and there would be about two classes a week that would graduate. Mm-hmm. So of those two, I, that's what I saw. 16 or 17. Most common was probably seven to eight of the 18. How many graduated in your class? Seven. Seven. Seven out of 18. Yeah. So 11, that took me way too long to get to 11. 11 people during your four months got fired. Fired. They lost their job. That's so sad. That's crazy. But obviously it needs to be there. Like we have to have training and tests to make sure you can do it because you have one heck of a job. And uh, the example I always bring up whenever we talk about the requirements for air traffic control, about having three years of work experience, I always say McDonald's just because that's more recognizable. But there was a girl in your class that her background was no college and she had had a full-time job at Panera for three years. And that's how she was eligible. And you know what? She passed. She passed. And she's still around too. Yes. That's, that's wild to me. So, okay, you get through it, you and your six buddies, all seven of you. Um, How the heck did you get Atlanta Center, the busiest airspace in the world, straight out of the academy? Like, (laughs) well, the day before um, our evals, they give us the list and they give you a list um, for every student who passes, you get two selections. So, options of what? Of facilities. Okay, so they give you two options. Um, so we had seven people, so we had 14 options. But here's the caveat, is they have mandatory facilities. So when I was there, Oak, uh, Oakland, New York Center, and Memphis were all mandatory. That means they were so understaffed that it had to be on every list for graduating yeah, so classes. Three of the seven people had to go to one of those facilities. So, so the whole thing was, is you have to beat your buddy now because they let you select your facilities based on, um, order of graduation. Class rank. Yeah. Like how well you did in class. Yeah. And we had probably of the seven, five of us were from Florida and Atlanta was the only thing in the South. So I knew we were in a trouble spot and there was going to be two spots available. At Atlanta. At Atlanta. And there was no Florida on the list. No Florida, no nothing. Because Miami was on the list if we had 18 people passed, but we had seven. Right, because whenever we started this process and you're like, there's 20 centers in the country. I was like, great. We get to pick out of 20 locations. Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) No. and, And I was like, okay, fine. I can deal with that. Where do we get to live? You're like, 
Don't know, Mindy. We won't know until graduation day what facilities have openings for me to pick from because it changes every single day. And it really did change every day. And fortunately, I was able to uh, do well enough and you know, we got to pick Atlanta. You, the top two, it was you yeah. and our friend Matt. Yeah. You guys were top two. I won't say that you were second, but you were second. Whatever. <laughs> but you got your pick. So you guys both picked Atlanta. We did. And here's the fun and the best part about it is uh, the next day we show up uh, to the facility and they give us all our papers and say, okay, um, you have two days to report to Atlanta. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, yeah. Okay. So, so two days to get to Atlanta and uproot your entire life with nothing. So many people like don't even like, can't even conceptualize that when I tell them or think that I'm exaggerating. Like literally you called me and said, hey, good news. I passed. I still have a job. I was like, great. And, and we're moving to Atlanta. I was like, okay, I can deal with that too. And we have to be living there in two days. So it's just like, boom, like drop and bomb after another. And what a stressful, crazy time. Like imagine if you had like kids and pets, a house to sell. Like I'm not trying to devalue this job, but man, it's kind of crazy in the beginning. It's rough. I mean, we, we packed up that day. We headed out and we got to Atlanta and we stayed in a hotel for what, a, a week almost? Yeah. Because, you know, we have, I have no idea. What We've Atlanta have never been. And, you know, fun fact is centers are not in the city. We don't work in Atlanta. We work in Hampton, which is an hour south of Atlanta. So then we got to figure out where do we even live? Where is there right. a grocery store around? That's the funniest part. Yeah. All these like Atlanta Center, Boston Center, Miami Center are not actually in Atlanta, Boston, and Miami. Like they're far. Jacksonville Center is nearly... Across the state, line, the state in Georgia. line in Georgia and Florida. It's not even, it's like an hour outside of Jacksonville as well. They're all far away. Do you remember why? Well, I do know why ours was. I think uh, during the Cold War, they made ours into a bomb shelter. So most of these facilities are made for that because they were all resurrected during the Cold War and they were shelters. Right. So they, and they, and they also want to keep them away from the metropolitan area just in case, because, you know, the facility is very secure. Yeah. All centers are, we have, you know, 10 foot high barbed wire fence and armed guards at all times because it is an essential service. And the facilities are kind of all the same, like quality and everything across the board. They, every single one is the same except, want to say DC? Which one? I thought it was Dallas. Maybe it's Dallas. I don't remember which one of us, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, so they're like pretty much all the same thing though. So it's not like, oh man, I'm going to DC. Like if, if someone says that's a crappy facility, they mean because of like the airspace, not because of the literal walls and like structure of the building is crappy. Yeah, all the walls are the same. Yeah, like they're all same quality, like literally same layouts and maps. Like you could walk into any facility and kind of know where you are. Yeah. Kind of the concept. That's pretty cool. Let's take a break from today's podcast to hear from our sponsors, RAA. 
Did you know there are three action steps you can take to protect yourself in a volatile market? Volatility in the market can make the best investor a little nervous and take actions that they know they normally wouldn't. It can be stressful and you may be thinking, shouldn't I be doing something though? Well, the answer is yes. The first and maybe the most important action you can take is to resist the urge to make decisions based on recent market movements alone. This is tough, but will pay off in the long run. Next, if you're feeling stressed in this market, it may be time to review your risk tolerance and your ability to take a loss in downturns. We all like to think we can take the risk up until the point where we actually see fluctuations in our portfolio. And lastly, get a second opinion on where you stand financially so you can take a longer term view of the market in your financial plan. Not sure where to start? RAA can help. Founded by Pilots for Pilots and with four decades of financial planning and investment management experience, RAA is intimately familiar with unique benefits, risks, and career timelines that pilots face. Whether you're early in your career as a pilot or you spent years flying the line, RAA is here to help navigate your financial journey from takeoff to touchdown. For more pilot-specific planning tips, go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. So once you get to Atlanta, um, your training did not end. Oh, your training does not end for a long time. And even then, it still doesn't end to me now. But I got to Atlanta. They immediately give you every single piece of information that goes into Atlanta Center. So, you know, controllers, we have to know airspace in our head. So the very first thing you got to do is draw maps with every single fix, every airway, every Q route, J route, VOR, nav aid, waypoint, every single thing. And I'm not joking when it was probably over 1,500 pieces of items and you have to take a test on that and pass. If you don't pass that test, you don't get to move on. Yeah, I remember you did that with dry erase boards and you would draw them over and over. So it's funny because as pilots, whenever I'm looking at um, like, instrument approaches and maps and all that. Like I just have to know how to read them. My low and root charts. I just have to know what that fix means or what these lines mean, but you have to know how to draw it all out. You have to know where that fix is like geographically. Everything. And also airports and frequencies. And for me, I mean, I think I use every day over a hundred plus frequencies. Really? At least. You know, so like that, that's the harder part, you know, because I can look at maps, you know, I've always looked at maps growing up and I've liked looking at that, but frequencies, numbers, remembering numbers. How do you remember that? How do you remember airports? Now you ask controllers, uh, I'm going, I'm changing my destination to uh, Southwest Georgia Regional. And I had to make up a a phrase, you know, to learn how to remember that. And I I just, you know, you have to know so much information before you even start doing anything. Right. That's like before you even get to like touch the microphone you or the touch keyboard. Anything. Yeah. So how is Atlanta Center uh like divvied up? Like you don't work all of the airspace. No, so we have seven areas in Atlanta Center. And it's ranges, you know, rough estimate, you know, if you go northeast to like Raleigh area, then go all the way southwest to close to uh Meridian. It's and then south. It's a big swath of airspace. So, so they divvy it up like they kind of like geofence it. Yes, and then we stratify. That's a FAA word for you. Stratify. Love so it. what that means is we use altitude to split off sectors because of saturation. So for instance, I work surface to twenty three thousand feet, and then I work twenty four thousand feet. 
to 34,000. And then I work 35 all the way up. So you get a slice of the cake, but then you also work each layer of the cake. Yes. And I do that all day, every day. And it doesn't but matter. But you're always working in the same slice of cake. Yes. But you might be working in different layers. Yes. Or different parts of that slice of cake. Yes, because you, you can divvy the, up that slice which, a couple times. But you never touch the rest of the cake. Correct. Got it. Yes. This makes a lot more are we, sense. Are you trying to say you you have some cake in the fridge for me? No. Okay. Um, so it took you a little while to get all trained up. So like on the pilot side, we're working towards our private pilot or our commercial pilot. Like what is that in air traffic controller lingo? So let's just start uh, from the very beginning. I'm a student pilot as a trainee. And then you get through all the sims in the back. You go through tons of simulators and then you have to pass all these still. You still don't have a secure job ever. So it's past the back. Once you successfully pass all the labs, because we have a whole room outside of the center, uh, outside of control room. And then you pass that, then you get assigned to the floor. And now you um, go work on what we call a D side. So for pilots, that would be like a co-pilot. Uh-huh. So you sit next to the controller talking. And what that position really does is they monitor everything on the scope that's going on and tries to help out the best they can. So we don't use flight strips anymore. That's all old. Now all the flight strips are on a monitor. So the D side, they look at that monitor and they're looking to make sure everything's good. And on the monitor, it also shows conflict alert. So there, there's algorithms involved that I don't know anything about, but it'll show colors like red, orange, yellow, and there's alerts that go up. So the D side will look at that, notify the R side, and try to help with that. And also, like you said, with our cake, we divvy it up. We have actual lines drawn in the sky, but it's on our scope, obviously, of where other controllers work. And when other when aircraft enter other uh, sectors, it has to be approved. So the D side is making sure that that's always done. Okay, so, so they're, they're doing, they're like the secretary. And they're taking landline calls. You know, we love the landline. <laughs> it's a real thing. That's one of my questions. We yeah, are you really control- on the landline? We, it is. We talk to controllers as much as we talk to pilots, nonstop. So when a controller says, so I was on the landline, like, that's true. It is true. I'm on it all the time. And the landline. On Facebook. Me, you're not on Facebook. <laughs> so the landline. No, the landline on Facebook. You ever seen it? The landline, are you saying this is a Facebook group? You keep talking. Yes, it's a Facebook group. Oh. Because people joke about it so much that the controllers will say, I'm on the landline. I'm not cool enough. Okay. The landline is actually a, like a phone that you call other sectors and yes, other controllers. It's a real phone, like AT&T supplies to the landline phone. I mean, I, I would have guessed it's actually a landline phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a real thing. Um, so then you mentioned our side. So our side is like the captain. And the, uh, our side is the captain. So okay. our side means radar. So they're the ones that are, you hear, and they're, they're in full control. Every decision making is, uh, every decision is coming from uh, the our side. So they're the ones talking on the mic. So, yes. so a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times when pilots are talking to center, they very well could be talking to two people and they don't even know it. 
a lot of times when staffing's good. <laughs> <laughs> when staffing is good, I like Yeah. That. So not lately. <laughs> uh, we did start training again. Everyone, please go apply to be an air traffic please. controller. Kevin needs your help. <laughs> we need you. So, okay, you get checked out. Uh, what's that called? CPC, Certified Professional Controller. Yes. And you like, you have a little license that kind of looks like a pilot license. I do. It looks exactly like my pilot's license. Nice and colorful, just like the FAA pilot license one. Yes. That's cool. And uh, when you got checked out, uh, your facility, I don't know if all facilities do this, but they had a tradition that I really, really loved. Yes. And hopefully we can keep it going. But uh, when you certify, you have to throw a party. A checkout checkout party. party. Yep. Because... It takes a long time and it takes the whole group to get you certified. To get one person certified, it, it is very, very difficult. It takes a village. Because well, one thing we miss right there is I have, let, let me see, I have seven sectors that I work. And so I have to get certified on the D side and the R side on both. So 14 check rides, 14 check rides. Yeah. Think about that. Don't want to. And you can fail. And, and like I said, until you're a CPC, you are not a controller. So um, on like at center, that training took what, like a year? Like not COVID world? Well, probably to be conservative, a year and a half. But when I was through, there was no other trainees. So you got pushed through fast. I got pushed through really quick. Whereas a lot of people now... They, because they hired so many people, then training was stopped. So now they're all fighting for hours because there's only so much of us that can train. Yeah. So it's going to take a while. Like the average, the the FAA says the average is three years. Okay. From like applying to being. No, from the time you, I think they say Oak City to fully certify. So Oak City, wow, three years. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's not. Too bad thinking about the responsibility that you guys have on your hands. (laughs) Yeah. But man, I loved that your checkout party. That was the last time we had like a real hangar party. And I know we need to do that again. I know we wanted to do some, but then COVID happened and, you know, we just didn't. You know, (laughs) and then you got busy and now I live by myself. (laughs) No, I live here sometimes when I'm not traveling. But that hangar party was awesome. It was when we first moved into our hangar home. We live on a little grass strip. South of Atlanta, and we threw a hangar party for your checkout party, and that was so awesome. There was a couple airplanes in there. We lit them up. It was nighttime, and it was um like right after New Year's, so everyone was in the party mood. There was a ton of people that came. Oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. Everybody enjoyed it. It's it's fun to let loose. Such a cool tradition though, because it's like um your way of repaying. Everyone who helped you get to that point. So you supplied all the food and alcohol and drinks and venue and everything. And you invite all your coworkers that helped to get you there. And that's just such a cool tradition. I hope that it doesn't die out. I know. We got to start it back up. I know. Because it's kind of died out over the pandemic. I asked you the other day if someone has done a checkout party lately. And you said no. A big reason being that training was halted during the pandemic. So no one has gotten checked out in a I've hot only minute. have one person since I got checked out. Check out since then. Well, he owes us a checkout party. He does. Because checkout parties are awesome. <laughs> so, okay. I love that you're a controller now because I'm a pilot. I fly a lot around it, of Atlanta. And we get to talk a lot on frequency. 
how is that for you? I think what she's trying to get at is, do you get nervous when I when you do talk? Do you to get her? nervous when I, I talk do. to you? She's the only dot. You're the only dot that I actually know. So yes, my heart rate goes up. My watch tells me to relax. You're stressed oh. out, and you know I get nervous because that's the person I know. That's the person I care about. So. It's fun. I love doing it. I always make sure I come back from break early just to talk to you. Oh, you cut your break short for me. But then I burn a good one after that. Don't worry. <laughs> like a longer break? Oh, yeah. You make up for it? I make up for it in the back. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, don't say that too loud. So <laughs> what was it like the first time that you got me on your frequency? Did you know I was coming through? Yes. I always know when you're flying. Come on. Pretty the very pretty. first time was the most nervous I ever been. I don't think I was certified yet either. So like I, I was a little scared to say things because I didn't know what I could do. And, yeah. you know, we try to be professional as we can, but, you know, I had to say something. I'm sure, I don't remember what I said, but it was probably something I along the lines of Schmindy. I think I got it on video. I think the first time we talked to each other, I knew I was going to get you. I could hear you work in planes. So before I checked on, I obviously knew it was you. And I think I got it on video. I've gotten Probably. a few of them on video. Probably. Those are my favorite. And even when I'm not flying a plane myself, when I'm flying commercial, you still find a way to bother me. I do. Well, the best one for those wondering is she was coming home from Wichita and I had to mention to the pilot that she was in the back. And it was getting late and I asked the pilot, can you please relay an order to my wife that I would like a pub sub for dinner when I get home? And you know what the pilot did? He sure as heck said it over the intercom as we were coming into Atlanta. And you know what? I got a pub sub when I got home from you work. You did because you know what? It was kind of funny because I'm sitting there in the back. I'm tired. I'm someone on the airplane that like, do not talk to me. I put my headphones on. I sit there. I go to sleep normally, like happenstance that I was even awake to hear this message. He's like, I just want to say hello to a special passenger on board. It's Mindy. Your husband's on the other, on the other side of the line. And he wants you to bring him home a sandwich for dinner. <laughs> and the whole cabin starts like rolling, laughing. I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, you know what? I feel like I owe him a sandwich now. Cause that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. But, you know, there was a really weird one that you sent through one time. It was a different time. I was flying home commercial and I was sitting in the back and I'm coming back. And this time the pilot didn't come on the intercom. I don't know what you said, but I think it was like a classic tale of telephone where like the message got construed as it came through to me. Because you must have told the pilot something to which he told his flight attendant something. I was sitting in the back and it was on a regional. So there's only two seats and there's this guy sitting next to me to which I don't even know what the man looked like. Never said hello to him because again, I get there. I sit down. If you sit down next to me and you go business or pleasure, like I want to die. <laughs> like do not. <laughs> so I'm like pretty much curled against the window and I, I'm on my phone like back turn to where she taps me on the shoulder. She's like, miss. I'm like, turn around. She, and she like looked like something was wrong on her face. She goes, do you know this man? To the guy sitting next to me. I was like, 
no. She goes, are you traveling with him? I was like, no. I mean, if I don't know him, why would I be traveling with him? No. And then she like gave him the dirtiest look. She's like, well, your husband's looking for you. (laughs) I was like, okay. And then she just walked off. I was like, does she think I'm like traveling with another man? And she just like caught me in the act or something. Listen, I don't know what I said, but (laughs) you must've said, Hey, I'm looking for my wife. She must be in the back. Something like that to where they literally thought you were looking for me. And they thought they like caught me on some like love affair or something. I was like, I didn't even say hello to the guy sitting next to me. Like what is happening? I can't help myself. I mean, it happens all the time. That was the weirdest, like strangest thing. And then it made it awkward for me and the guy sitting next to me. Cause then he's like, what are you up to? Like, he didn't say that, but he looked at me that way. Like, what was that? And I looked at him like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know. But then it just made it awkward for us sitting there that she assumed we were together or something. It was really, really weird. Well, I promise not to do it all the time now. Yeah, please don't Just do that. every other time. Whatever you said that time, like, don't say that again. <laughs> well, I can't remember. Like, so that was the strangest interaction I've ever had. <laughs> so, uh, have you ever recognized anyone else on Frequency? Yes, some of our friends from college, Kayla. Yeah. She flies a regional airline, and at night I actually work Chattanooga, uh-huh. so uh, I take their airspace. So they fly in and out of Chattanooga and Huntsville. So I worked her. And uh, there's a couple other people that I, uh, I talk to, but you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people will say my name yeah. on frequency, and I never know who it is because they don't say anything back. It's like Kevin, I'm like Kevin, yes, that's me. Hello, <laughs> hello, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> and then they go. <laughs> so there's tons of people who recognize me now because you know I work the same area all the time. Yeah, and so I never know who's talking to me. So tell everyone, what area do you work? Where can they find you? You can always find me uh, slinging jets. Uh, <laughs> Ew, <laughs> west departure off Atlanta and then the Northwest arrival corridor. So anytime you're going westbound off Atlanta, you're talking to me. And anytime you're coming from the West and landing Atlanta, you're talking to me. Ask for Caveman Kevin. Caveman Kevin. That's the nickname. <laughs> Yeah, that's like his Wonder call why. sign at work, which I find hilarious because it's so fitting. I'll just say <laughs> <Thanks>. that. <laughs> um, what is your biggest ATC pet peeve? Well, uh, recently, um, it's going to be like VFR planes that aren't talking to me. That's one of the things that is uh, rough. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> who am I talking about? I'm not going to promote him. <laughs> I love him. But we're, so, we're competitors. So. so working in Atlanta, we, we work the busiest arrival corridor in the world. And tons and tons of planes. Right. Like to fly right through it without talking to me. And I have no problem. Like perpendicular to the arrival yeah. stream. Yeah. I love flying. I love the freedom of flight. But when you know you're around a busy area, don't, don't be afraid to talk to me. Right. You know, like it's a benefit for everyone because we get RAs all the time from them. And it's tough for me to recognize it early enough because you, you know, recently we started getting ADSB on the scope more. So it's easier for me to see, but talk, you know, talk to the controller. I mean, 
It's not a big deal. I'm not going to, a center guy is not going to inconvenience you. You know, I know a lot of uh, VFR pilots going to approach and they put them on headings and restrict their altitude. Center, we're not doing that. We're just, we have so much volume. We just want to see who's out there. You know, because you're flying low or you're flying high. And maybe they could change altitude by a thousand feet and you didn't have to make 30 traffic calls to everyone on the arrival stream. Or make a five degree right turn. Right. So, and obviously that's more safe for that person flying VFR too. And call traffic to them. You know, I mean, that's a big deal. Those are big planes coming over there. What other pet peeves do you have? So I love them, but we have jump planes. It's the same thing with the arrival cord. Yeah. We have jump planes that jump right over the intersection. So it's it's labor intensive and it's a lot of work because we got to get everybody involved. Because I want everybody to go have fun and jump out of the airplane. Careful where you skydive, people. You know, and but at the same time, this is a it's a big anytime we have hot spots for RAs, that's that's the hardest thing for me. Because I I don't that's one of the things I don't ever want. Yeah. You know, my job, I run them tight to be efficient, but I'm always in control, hence the name. But with VFR stuff okay. and ooh, and the jump planes, you know, they get close and they get them in sight and they'll, the Delta jets or something will still get an RA, you know, even though they have them in sight. So you, as you mentioned, got your private pilot license in January of this year. Sorry to break it to you. You were a year off. 2021. Do you think that's helped you in your career as a controller? Immensely. I mean, it helps so much with my low altitude sectors and understanding that you can't, you know, entrail certain planes. You know, you can't do certain things. And also just how, what the pilot's looking for out of me. You know, what? Right. how can I be more helpful and not a burden? You know, I'm not trying to make your job harder. You know, I don't want to make my job harder either by having to reiterate things more. So like, I've, I know how to speak to certain people. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no problem if you say you're training or a solo student. I understand what that means now. You know, I went through it. I'll slow my speech rate down. I'll be real clear and concise. Yeah. I'll ask them what they want to do. So you're a more compassionate controller now. I wouldn't call her compassionate. Caveman Kevin's Understand compassionate. It. Here's the thing. I, I only have so many clicks of the button that I can do with my transmissions because it's we're busy and I want to limit that. So with someone who has very little experience talking on frequency, who's nervous, mm-hmm. I can hear it in their voice. I don't want them to be you know, missing things. And I don't want to repeat myself because I would rather go really, really slow and talk directly to them. They get it and then we move on. Right. I mean, aviation tries to be a one size fits all from how we train to, you know, the order that we train all this. And just in reality, everyone's different. So although you're using the same phraseology, to each pilot, it takes this extra understanding from you to be a better controller to talk to each one differently or know when you need to slow down or know when you need to like emphasize something or have them repeat something back that you weren't sure they got. And you say phraseology, I'll use plain language, you know, and talk like, up, you know, the person to person because it's easier sometimes. And here's the thing too, is like on that same frequency, I'm talking to the the big heavy jets coming into Atlanta. So like I flip it on and off nonstop because when I go to talk to them, totally different. I'll rattle things off. Like you've seen on YouTube, how controllers talk fast, but you're only talking fast to a two man crew. 
you know, for a single pilot doing a solo cross country for the first time talking to Atlanta Center, they're not going to rattle it off what they need. Right. You got to be slow. Is your your professional recommendation that all controllers go on a discovery flight or do you think all controllers need to have their private pilot license? Like, do you have any opinion on that? I think it's asking a lot for to have their license, but I wish that we would have more ability to have some interaction with GA and commercial. Yeah. I, I really think it's a big thing for both worlds, pilots and controllers equally know what's going on. I mean, you came to the center, you got to see what goes on. Right. Well, you, so um, the controlling facilities have this available. I, you have to have a contact there, or I'm sure you can reach out and get a hold of someone Absolutely. that can get you in. But that's a free resource for pilots. Pilots can go for free to go tour an air traffic control facility and get a better understanding. But there's nothing like that for controllers. There's not a free flight waiting for them in a 182 to go see what that's like. Nothing in GA. We have a something for commercial, but it's really difficult. But GA is really where it's at because that's where the most errors, I guess, would happen. Right. Is because with the with the... Part 121 with the commercial jets, you know, errors happen all the time, but there's still two crew. You know, they're able to catch things. I'm able to catch things. We can resolve. Right. With the GAs, with the little Skyhawks and the 182s, we don't, my controllers don't understand when someone's at 13,000 feet and they got to be at 5,000 feet in 10 minutes, why that's a problem. And they also don't understand when they give these insane reroutes that on a little plane like a 182 or a Bonanza, like you just added 40 minutes to that person's flight time. Yeah, and you you want to know actually what really has changed is so Atlanta approaches uh, the Bravo, obviously super busy because of Hartsfield. So we don't, um, they don't really allow overflights to go through. So let's say, give you an example, you're going from Nashville to Orlando, that route goes right through over the top of Hartsfield. For anyone listening, you're never going to be able to do that if you're below 15,000 feet, ever. But for me, knowing that reroutes cost money as an airplane owner, you know, I do my best to try to work something out. You're still going to get vectored around. But instead of giving you a fixed way outside, I'll try to maybe leave you on a heading for a little longer and save you a little bit of time. Compassionate caveman heaven. caveman. That's you. So um, if you can think of anything and... If you're comfortable sharing, can you tell me like a strange or scary situation that's happened at work? So I'd say the the worst thing I I, I shouldn't say the worst thing, but um, TCAS, as I've mentioned, is everybody's friend. But I had an instance where I had a Delta jet descending into Atlanta, and I needed to get him down because there was two pieces of traffic. There was a King Air at 23,000 feet. And then there was another King Air at 20,000. So I needed to split the difference. And, and I, so I gave the Delta because I had to get him below the first one. The second one, not a big deal. But if I didn't get it below the first one, there was no way they're going to have to give him a 360. So I told the Delta to send uh, down to 21. I gave him clearance. So he descends really quick gets down, and I call the traffic to him. He's descending so fast. What happened 
was the TCAS gave him alert. So he hit 21,000 feet and then climbed right back up in the face of the King Air. They were face to face. The second King Air at 23. Yeah. They were face to face at 23,000 feet after I've done my job, get them below. And that was probably why this story is memorable is that was the first time I've ever heard a pilot's voice and an air carrier's voice crackle. You know, he was nervous because he knew yeah. I called the traffic. And but that he was, has to respond to his RA. And then he It's resp- required. Yep. So he, you know, I tried to vector the King Air immediately. And fortunately, you know, the pilot was on his game and responded again and went back down. So that was one of the more um, tense moments because I knew the traffic was there. And, you know, I did what I thought was right, but I didn't, I guess, plan that the RA would pop. Right. So this is just a time where technology honestly got in the way. Like that's such a fantastic system, but it got in the way because... You had good communication with the Delta pilot, Delta, whatever, commercial. Yep, I was talking to all three planes. Right. And you told him about the two airplanes that you're going to kind of layer him in between the two. And he knew that as well, but he has to respond to his RA. Like that's a mandatory technology compliance. So whenever the airplane sees his descent rate of however many thousands of feet per minute down, it assumes that that trend is going to continue. So it assumed that he was not going to level at 21. That's where the technology is just not smart enough yet. It didn't know he was going to level. It assumes he's going to go down and hit that king air at 20. Yeah. So what's it do? It says, hey, climb, 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 and goes back into the other king air at 23. And, yep. there's, and you just have to sit there and watch it all unfold. And that's the thing. As a controller, when you're responding to RA, you literally call the traffic to him, and that's it, and let it happen. And... Fortunately, it took care of itself and nothing happened. But, you know, I learned from that. Just like, you know, controllers, I'm, I'll admit, I make a hundred plus mistakes a day, but that's why they pay me is how I respond. So what I've learned is you can't have some aircraft descending at 3,000 feet a minute on top of something, no matter what. So if, in that situation, when it does happen again, it happens all the time, is I just turn. You know, like for any guys listening that land at Hartsfield and you get a weird turn close to the final fix on the arrival, that might be why. You know, you got to descend. I'm not going to have you descend quick on top of someone. I know you're going to get an RA. They happen so frequently. And if there's another traffic, then that yeah. could be And an I know issue. RAs are not fun. I mean, someone could get hurt. Yeah. Someone's standing up in the back. Flight and attendant. That's why they say your job is so stressful. I can't imagine like the stress you endure to sit there and like watch that unfold after you gave those communications to him and you see these two airplanes pointed at each other, how incredibly stressful that is. Yeah, that was very nervous. And, and you know, I had to look back and I looked over the tape just to see what I could have done differently. And like I said, I just figured I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. We're going to turn planes. They got steering wheels. So how, how do you deal with the stress from work? I go play golf all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I could have saw that one coming. I thought you were going to enlighten me with something I didn't know. No, I mean. No, I don't. I play golf all the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that really is your outlet. And that's why I do my best not to complain how many days a week you play. Because I know that is your outlet. It's this so was in- the third day in a row. Today? Yeah. 
<laughs> I played 27 holes today. Hey, that's your stress thing. Yeah. And like I said, controllers need that. Everyone needs that, no matter what job you're in. But man, I just, the job is not for me. So thank you for what you do to allow me to fly through safely. It's a thankless job. Mindy. Do your airspace. I mean, technically I pay you. You do. Everybody pays me. Taxpayer funded. Taxpayer funded. You're welcome. No, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll end on a good note. Thank you so much for allowing me to interview today. You were such a good sport. Thank you, Justin, for having us both, both and allowing us to be guests on your podcast. Again, congrats to you, Justin, for this amazing platform and brand that you have built. And we're just going to end it on a little bit of go Michigan. Go Big Blue. Go anything but Buckeyes. What? (laughs) Thanks, Justin. Bye, everyone. That's a wrap on episode 255. Make sure you come back next week where I'm talking to my mentor. That's right. One of my mentors that helped me get on where I am now. And uh, we talk about it too. We talk a lot about it. So it's a great episode and I can't wait for you guys to hear that as well. Mindy, Kevin, thank you from a year ago for doing this. I appreciate it. But here it is again. Hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.